Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Political commentator Thomas Frank on his latest book, Listen Liberal, and on what's the matter with the American election. Thomas Frank is the author of Pity the Billionaire, The Wrecking Crew, and What's the Matter with Kansas, or What's the Matter with America, as it was published in the UK. A former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's, Frank is the founding editor of The Baffler and writes regularly for Salon. And his latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. Tom, thank you very much for appearing on the Atoms today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Before we get on to what's wrong with the Democratic Party, I want to recap on how the Republican Party got to where it was. Over a decade ago, you published What's Wrong with Kansas or What's Wrong with America. Yeah. Can you just recap what the thesis of that book was? Yeah, it was about working class conservatism. So it was about it was about how people who have been spectacularly ill served by uh, this sort of market turn beginning in the 1980s, uh, how those people are enlisting in the very party that brought them to disaster, and uh, we we see it now with the, the Trump phenomenon. It's you know it's growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, all the things that I described and what's the matter with Kansas and now come home to the entire country. We're all living in Kansas now, <laughs> sort of. And, uh, but the, there's also a big difference between then and now. Back then it was all about the culture wars. So this is before the recession, before the crash. Mm-hmm. And um, places like Kansas were really in the grip of this kind of moral crusade you know, for certain things. And uh, that's sort of taken a back seat now to economic issues. I mean, as you can see, look at, again at Trump. This is a man that uh, back then they would have considered... Not just immoral, but a kind of you know, like he's like right out of he's like right out of the Bible. He's like a, a bad guy right out of the Bible, you know, and uh, uh, and here he is, you know, leading the party of, of moral values. You know, and he's on his third wife. You know, whatever, whatever with this guy. So, what were some of the the cultural concerns that the Republican Party played on then? What were the working class people bothered about, if not their own? Economic interests, yeah. yeah. Well, the the one in Kansas, there's a whole bunch of them. So there's in America, there's all of these um, cultural issues, social issues. I mean, we fight about all sorts of things 
that are only, you know, vaguely related to economic issues. And the one that really turned Kansas on its head was the abortion question, which is pretty much a settled matter all over the world, or all over Europe anyway, and is a, if people thought was a settled matter in America as well. And in fact, even in Kansas, uh, abortion had been legal before the Roe v. Wade decision, and then, well, it is legal today. Anyhow, so that was that's the main issue that really turned that state on its head. But of course, there are dozens of others, ranging from things that are fairly well known to things that are really obscure, like a prayer in schools. There's people that want to bring back, you know, they want to make kids in school pray, <laughs> which just always struck me as, as odd, but you know, whatever. To, to make this a very long story really short, what's intriguing about the culture wars is that every single one of these issues is described in terms of class conflict. It's the ordinary people versus what they used to call the liberal elite. And so you saw in a place like Kansas and all over the, the country, basically, you saw uh, uh, working class people signing up for the Republican Party on that basis. And now, uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, you, you see uh, a Republican leader, Trump, who has emerged and who's actually saying, look, the Republican Party brought, and he's, in some ways he repeats things that I said in What's the Matter with Kansas to the point, I mean, at the Republican convention, you had a speaker who got up and said, the culture wars are a smokescreen that was designed to distract us from economic issues. He really said this from the podium of the Republican convention, you know, and it's like, that's the party that has been doing the distracting and the generating the smokescreen. It's these guys. But now here comes Trump and he says, Republicans have brought you in with all these culture war issues, but you get nothing. And so it's time to talk about a real issue. And he has a handful of things that are of real economic concern to working people, chiefly the trade issue. And, uh, and then a couple of others as well, the immigration issue, stuff like this, and has signed up enormous numbers. I mean, they are uh, rallying to him in, in huge, or they were. I mean, it's all fallen apart now. But uh, the Trump crusade for a while there looked pretty, uh, you know, it looked like something to be reckoned with. What's interesting about both of those cultural issues that you mentioned, abortion and the, the prayer in schools, although obviously... And there are dozens more, you know. Sure, but those two in particular, I think, are interesting in that Although, with the caveat that, you know, clearly states are restricting abortion as much as they can. Some states only have a couple of places where you can legally get one now. But these are things that were Supreme Court issues. They were never going yes. to win on those things exactly. anyway. Exactly. That's a double con. You know, the idea that you were saying, these are, these are issues that we're going to fight for. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, it, by the way, it serves, in some ways it serves both parties because... In the debate last night, or maybe it was the first debate, uh, you know, there's a Supreme Court judge is up in the air right now. They've made it into an election issue. Which way the Supreme Court's going to go? And Republicans, you know, want all their different things. And the Democrats are like, you know, this we want to make sure that abortion remains legal in America. And that's up to the Supreme Court. And so uh, in this particular election, it's become once again... An important issue, but there's something more important about this that you that, that that you're getting at here, and this is what I realized by the end of what's the matter with Kansas or what's the matter with America, is that there is a secret underlying class conflict to these things that even the people who are involved in them don't really understand. And what it is is this: so if you read the anti-abortion literature, they dwell on the fact that it was a Supreme Court decision and not something done by vote, not but by plebiscite. 
it was, or not by any kind of act of Congress or by this act of state legislature. This was done by the Supreme Court, by judges who are not elected. And some of the more, if you read, again, if you read the anti-abortion literature, they will, they also look at the decision itself, which was written by a guy called Harry Blackman, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by Nixon, I believe. He was actually a Republican. And uh, he had been the lawyer for the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. He had been a lawyer for doctors. And when he wrote that decision, his where he was mentally, or what, what he was describing in the decision, was we have to let doctors prescribe what they think is right. It's all about the freedom of the, of the, of the medical profession to prescribe. And so this is being done by the legal profession, Without, in reference to <laughs> their peers, you understand, in the medical profession, these are people at the very top of the professional hierarchy consulting one another and then, and then imposing that decision on the rest of the country. And that is profoundly undemocratic. Whatever you think of it, and by the way, I agree with it, and I think abortion should be legal, and I think that the, the whole thing is, is ridiculous, the anti-abortion movement, I can't stand them, but you can understand their take on the class conflict when you, you, you see it this way. Okay, that's really interesting. And uh, so I started tracing that thread, and it takes you right to my new book, Listen mm -hmm. Liberal, where the, the, the sort of background of it is, is that there, there is another class conflict in America besides one we always think of, which is those who own and those who work. There's another one between those who work and those who are professionals, mm -hmm. those who prescribe. And this class war, you can trace it all the way back in American history. Nobody ever does. We never talk about it. But it's, it's there. It's all through. And right now, it is, uh, that is, I mean, the professional class totally and utterly controls the Democratic Party. That's who they are. But this is a class that never thinks of itself as a class. Mm -hmm. They think of themselves as something else. As, you know, we're the highly educated. We're the smart ones. You know, and so Democrats are just the party that gets things right. And the Republicans are the party of folly, you know. But no, it's a, it's a party of a particular... I'm sorry, I talk way too much, and I apologize. That's exactly what I told you today. Okay, so I got ahead of you there. But yeah, all right, I'll shut up now. But that's, that's where things are. I'm Caitlin Doty. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, we'll come back to the professionalization in a moment. But just to finish off with the Republicans, so as you said... What's the Matter with Kansas ended, you know, that was a book that you wrote over 10 years ago, ended before the financial crash and before the rise of the Tea Party. So I want to talk about how we got to where we are yeah. now in the Republican Party. And so, although, you know, you clearly didn't see those things coming, but you're right, you, are, you do end up in exactly the same position as you predicted. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what can I say? It's exactly right. Uh, Trump is a little different than what I thought would happen, but the, the, there have been... The, look, Republicans play the political game extremely well. And so the financial crash, you know, the, the financial crisis and then the crash that happened in 08, 09, this is... There has never been in my lifetime a more, you know, clear-cut demonstration of the folly of free market deregulated financial system. You know, it's like, oh my God, you deregulated these guys, you encouraged them to do all these things, and now look what's happened. And the Republicans are in, you know, this is a, this is a basic fundamental challenge to their ideology, to the sort of free market ideology. And being extremely clever political players, what do they do? They made up a kind of bogus political party that they called the Tea Party. It's not really a party. Mm -hmm. It's just called that. You know, it's been named after the Boston Tea Party you know, in the 1700s, 
But it sounds like a political party. And um, I went to their very first rally, by the way, in, uh, in whatever year that was, 2009. It was right out in front of the White House, and it was obviously a put-up job. It was like Newt Gingrich's group was out there, Grover Norquist's group was out there, a bunch of lobbyists were out there, you know, congressional aides, and they all had their name tags on, and they were all wearing ties, you know, and they're out there protesting. And, 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 I, and so I laughed it off. I wrote a column about it in the Wall Street Journal, and, I'm, and I laughed at these guys. You know, like they think this is this is their response to the recession. Nobody's going to buy this. Oh yeah, <laughs> the country bought it. It caught on, mm-hmm. and uh, before long, it was all over the country, and it was a real grassroots thing. And uh, it, you know, it, it, extraordinary. Well, you said the, the Republicans are sort of canny operators, but it's got it's got out of their control, isn't that how we? Well, Trump is out of their, yeah. Trump is out of their control. Yes. So that's so th- this year is a you know it's a very interesting year that the, the Democratic Party, which we always think of as the more disorganized and even dysfunctional of the two parties, they, um, the leadership sort of uh, clique in the Democratic Party totally retained control and fended off any kind of challenge to the, the, to the reigning clique in the Democratic Party. But the, the Republicans fell apart. And by the way, they started this year with great optimism because they knew Hillary was going to be the candidate. All, I mean, I knew she was going to be the candidate when I wrote Listen Liberal last year. It's very easy to see that one coming, and uh, because it's her turn, you know. And, but the Republicans could see that coming, and they knew she's this deeply, deeply unpopular person. And so they had, what was it, 17 candidates running at one point? And every single one of them knew if they got the nomination, they were going to win. There was only one guy on that stage that she could possibly beat, and it was Trump. And that's the one they chose. And so what was fantastic about this was watching the Republican Party come apart. They couldn't keep it together. Uh, where the Democrats could. And that's that's kind of unusual. Yeah, so, yeah, this time, yes, they played the game all wrong. But the, the irony of it is so wonderful. You know, the Koch brothers and all these other players in the Republican Party for decades have been honing this weapon, making sure that, they, that it's very well oiled and it's, you know... And it's ready to do their bidding and, you know, all this stuff. And this guy, Trump, comes along and just wrecks it. <laughs> Let's go over to the Democratic Party then. So what, while all of this narrative was going on that you talked about in What's the Matter with Kansas with the Republicans trying to take the, uh, the working class voters, what were the Democratic Party doing? Well, they have a, an assumption. The Democrats have been, in the, for the last 30 years, have they had their own philosophy, which is a sort of... You know, a slightly modified version of the Republican one. They're all, they also like markets. They also like free trade. They also like deregulation. Uh, but they they want to be more responsible about it. You know, they they don't want the government to go the deficit to be too grand and that sort of thing. They're you know they're they're worried about. It. So they're they're slightly more responsible. But it's it's basically a very similar sort of program, and it's based on the interests of a different class of people. So I'm not saying that the two parties are the same, but I mean just. You know, for some very critical background, Ronald Reagan was, you know, the, the sort of the man who launched the uh, turn to the right in American politics, was able to get some things done, but a lot of his agenda, no, he couldn't, he, he failed. He couldn't get it through. He was not able to overturn Glass-Steagall. He wasn't able to deregulate the banking industry the way he wanted. He wasn't able to get some of his free trade deals passed. It took a Democrat to do those things. It took Bill Clinton uh, who was the president for back in the 1990s, uh, he got those things done. He got a whole bunch of the Reagan agenda done. And when he did it, this is very interesting, he, you know, a lot of his constituency was injured by these things. And the uh, people at the time in the administration and the press had a saying uh, to, when they would talk about those people. They'd say, they have nowhere else to go. You know, these are people who are always part of a left coalition. What are they going to do, vote for the Republicans? 
You know, they'd say this about uh, blacks. Uh, Clinton very famously insulted Jesse Jackson during the 92 campaign and then proceeded to do a number of things that injured uh, black people in America, the crime bill in 94, the welfare reform, that sort of thing. And they, they would say, well, where, what, what are they going to do? You know, where, they've got nowhere else to go. And they said the same thing about organized labor. When they passed, they got one of the, these free trade... It was the first of the big free trade treaties. They call it a free trade treaty, but that's not what it is. It's actually... It's a complicated story, but it did uh, terrible injury to organized labor and basically to industry and to working-class life in America. And it was designed to do that, and it did it. It was, you know, everything worked as planned. And then they proceeded to pass a whole bunch of other ones after that. And... You know, I talk to a lot of guys who are in unions, and they are to this day deeply bitter and resentful of the Clintons because of because of those moments. And that's your that's your Trump voter. But back in those days, the Clinton the uh, the the conventional wisdom was again, they've got nowhere else to go. You know, what are they, what are they going to do? Well, for the Republicans, no, because this is a consensus thing. The Republicans agree with us on the on these treaties. So so it was like they were captured. The Democrats looked at them as a captured constituency. Now, look what's happened. They have found somewhere else to go. That's Trump. That's what's happening. It's the uh, it's sort of ultimate kind of blowback. <laughs> Only it's not... Well, now it doesn't matter anymore. It's, it's over now. But, uh, I mean, Trump is going to be defeated in a sort of sweeping sort of way, is my prediction. But, uh, well, we shall see. We talked about how the battle for the sort of the heartlands of the working classes was fought over the, the culture wars. And it's often said that the left won the culture wars. You know, the right won the economic wars. The left won the culture wars. Yeah, and that's true. A lot of the concerns oh, about liberal yes. elite have have clearly come to pass. Yeah, so let's talk about some of those concerns. What well, sort of things? Gay, were... I mean, gay marriage, which was geez, just ten years ago. Was it ten years ago? No, two thousand four. The year I wrote, "What's the matter with Kansas?" Uh, that's the year that they uh, the Republicans contrived to put gay marriage on the ballot in all of these different states, knowing that it would, it would you know, bring a lot of people out to the polls and get all these certain class, certain kinds of people really stirred up and angry and get them to vote. And today it is, uh, you know, it's, uh, gay marriage is legal all over America. It's fairly uncontroversial. People are proud of this. Uh, it, I mean, we have, the, the thing is that the culture keeps changing in this, in this, going in the same direction it's been going in for centuries, dare I say. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, the culture warriors keep losing. And that's, that's, that's the way it goes, you know. But they'll keep coming up with new culture war issues. We talked about the professionals, but more specifically the liberal class. Yeah, that's a term I made up, by yeah. the way. Oh, no, I didn't make it up. I took it from um, another author, but uh, I use it in a different sense. But it's a meaningful thing. And, and just to say that, you know, obviously liberal in the UK means something rather different to right. what it does yeah. Sorry in the that, US really. where in the US where it's to be fair it's used as an insult in the UK now since the coalition government but much more so in the in the US so who are the liberal class <laughs> listen up liberal <laughs> so do you want to see I'll tell you where the title comes from so yeah, yeah, yeah. using the word liberal in that as, a, as a kind of an insult so when I wrote what's the matter with Kansas I remember one day I was in Wichita it's a city in Kansas and I was um uh, I was doing an, going to do an interview with a guy, a local reporter, and uh, and he came by the hotel to pick me up, and he and he he rang the the room, you know, on the telephone, and I picked up the phone, and he says, "Rise and shine, liberal." <laughs> I always like that. It was early in the morning, you know. Get out of bed, liberal. Come on down here. So uh, anyhow, well, who are the liberal class? 
It's a, it's my uh, synonym for professionals. Okay, so professionals. Uh, it, it, what's happened? Is professionals meaning people with advanced degrees, meaning uh, you know, doctors, lawyers, uh, clergy, uh, and uh, engineers, a group of other architects, this kind of thing. But it's now it's a huge part of the population now. It's not just the sort of traditional professions. There is people with advanced degrees in all of these different industries, and um, they are widely regarded, especially by Democrats, as the sort of the people who are going to inherit the earth. They're the ones who are going to be the winners in what they call the new economy, the sort of post-industrial economy. And uh, Democrats have worked very hard to make themselves into the party that represents these people. And they've succeeded. The uh, professionals are a uh, very reliable Democratic voters. In fact, the most, well, one of the most reliable Democratic constituencies. And uh, the Democratic Party does this kind of amazing service for the industries where these people are concentrated. So Silicon Valley, uh, they have a term for them, the creative class. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you use this in England as well, aren't, don't you? Mm -hmm. sure. uh, the, the creative class, it's all about innovation, encouraging innovation. Hillary Clinton talks about this all the time. And the certain industries where these people are concentrated, so Silicon Valley, big pharma. Uh, and we write, you know, these trade deals that are supposedly free trade deals are all written to protect American pharmaceutical companies. But especially Wall Street, uh, uh, investment banking. Uh, this is thought to be a, a sort of a great, you know, powerful readout of the professional class. And Democrats have, over the years, gone from being the party that existed in order to attack and fight with Wall Street to being the party of Wall Street, which is an extraordinary shift. Again, going back to the Bill Clinton days. But you see it now with Hillary. All the Wall Street money is going to Hillary this cycle. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tom Frank and we're talking about his latest book, Listen Liberal, and the impending election. So Thomas, we were talking about the liberal class, who is now the main constituent of the Democratic Party. Some of their concerns we were talking about when we finished up. And the one I want to move on to, which is probably you know one of the major concerns throughout the country, if not the world, is inequality. Give us a brief a brief snapshot of what things are like in America at the moment vis-à-vis you know, wage disparity. Well, you know, inequality is a euphemism for all of the sort of big social changes that have been happening for the last 30 or 40 years. And here's a simple, a simple way of looking at it. So I live in Washington, D.C., or in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and it's a very wealthy city. People are doing really, really well. Real estate is very valuable. Uh, For people like this, uh, these are golden years. The stock market goes up and up and up. And uh, the Obama years have been great for them. This is a prosperous town. Uh, If you go to, you know, not very far away, say you go to West Virginia, the next state over, this is a state that it's their sort of way of life is going down the drain, you know. Uh, Coal mining, but not just coal mining, all manner of manufacturing and... uh, uh, different industries like that. Uh, West Virginia, very working class state, and uh, these are people that are, you know, seeing a way of life come to an end. And that's inequality. So in the neighborhood that I live in, they're right now uh, in Bethesda, in the part of Bethesda that I live in, they're tearing down all the uh, old houses and replacing them with these enormous <laughs> structures that they specialize in building now. They call them McMansions because they're like the fast food of mansions. And that's, you know, that's, that's life for one group of Americans, one class of Americans. It is heaven on earth. It is the best of times. And for other people, it's the worst. When Obama got voted in, you know, that was supposed to be a bit revolutionary. He was all about hope. What happened? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a funny way of putting it. He was on about hope. Yeah, well, Democrats are always on about hope, but the, Obama was a little more emphatic than others. And uh, he wasn't just on about hope. He also had a lot of ideas that were, um, you know, he, he had a, a, a knowledge and an understanding of what was wrong with the country that, that, that is unusual from coming from a politician. And I really admired him. I thought he was going to be an excellent president. I voted for him. I think the first president I've ever voted for with complete enthusiasm. And uh, he has been something of a disappointment. I think he... Uh, you know, there's a reason that Hillary Clinton is not talking about hope this year. Her her husband, by the way, used to talk about it all the time. He was the man from hope, remember? Mm-hmm. And uh, Democrats traditionally use that word. You know, it's it's for their traditional constituency, working class people. That's a very important word, you know, because life is filled with adversity, but you have hope. And there's no way to use that now. There's no way to talk about that now because it's poisoned. It's poisoned by the, the Obama experience that we put such faith in this man and you know, he didn't deliver for that kind of, that class of Americans. He did deliver for other people. Like I said, it's, you know, if you're a Wall Street banker, you, you, uh, you know, Wall Street caused the uh, financial crisis and the recession and has been uh, restored completely, you know, to the status quo ante. Everything's fine for them. They're doing great. You know, a lot of other industries like that are doing great. Silicon Valley, absolutely a golden era for them. Well, Despite all of that, despite two terms of disappointment, Obama's still, I mean, among the people who he was always going to be popular with, he's still popular, he's still likeable, people people still admire him. Oh, I do, I admire him. So I'm a total sucker for this guy. I, well, uh, I, mean, I went to the Democratic convention and... Uh, 
And he, you know, and, and look, I just wrote a whole book, Listen Liberal, is critical of, very critical of the Obama years. And I watched him speak at the Democratic Convention, and again, so inspiring, such a beautiful orator, so good at it, so smart. And, uh, uh, and you know, and I love his family, his wife, they're fantastic people. And I, and I swear to God, I was watching him and I was like, why can't we run this guy again? This guy's great. You know, what he's saying, I want, I want another helping of that. But why is it then? Because from... from well, he's, well, he's personally popular and, and, and his, but his, his, uh, what he's done is not popular. That's very simple. He's mm-hmm. a likable, he's a likable man. You know, they used to say in the Bush years, remember, which candidate can you imagine yourself having a beer with? Mm-hmm. Well, this time around, it's certainly Obama. But then what I, what I was going to say was, on this side of the pond, Hillary Clinton's politics certainly don't look that different from Obama. She served under him for, for years and years and years. Why does everybody dislike her so? Is it simply down to the fact that she's a woman? Uh, no, I think it's, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, but take a step back there. It's not just that she's Obama's successor. She is his hand-picked successor. Yeah. I mean, this is, and it's also the the rest of her husband was president, for God's sakes. This is such an insider play. Uh, Why is she so disliked? That goes way, way, way back. And part of it is, of course, that she's a woman and a a feminist and, uh, you know, and a a successful professional. This goes back to the 90s. She was this deeply hated person in American life uh, for the reasons that I just gave and a bunch of other ones as well. She's, she's, her public persona is very cold. You know, she's very wonkish. Have you ever seen her or watched her try to give a a political speech? She's not a very rousing uh, figure. Uh, She finds it difficult to switch it on. Uh, but, uh, you know, people also are sympathetic to her. I remember when the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. I had never been a particular fan of Hillary Clinton, but after that happened, I felt so sorry for her. And uh, another thing is the email scandal, uh, the Clinton Foundation scandal. These look real, real bad. But uh, I'll tell you, you know, she's going to be president. I'm quite certain that she's going to beat Donald Trump. I feel sorry for her that she had to stand on a stage with that man uh, the other day, you know, and do this do this debate. That's that just must be excruciating. And she has got real fortitude. This is just my me talking here. I, you know, she's got real strength to to do something like that. Ooh, I, I don't think I could do it. That's so awful. Well, we'll finish up that with Trump in a minute. But before we do, I just wanted to say, you know, something else that's interesting and perhaps unusual about what's happening with with Hillary is because of the rise of Bernie Sanders, she's also got a big cohort of people on the left that dislike her as well, yeah. as well as the, the people on the right that were always going to dislike her. This yeah. seems to be an unusual situation. Well, yeah, but the same was true with her husband. Uh, but th- they dislike her, but they're probably going to vote for her. They're like, they're in the same situation as me. They disagree with, I disagree with her on many issues. By the way, have you seen the WikiLeaks thing about her, um, her speeches to Wall Street banks? So a lot yeah, of these, no. some of the details of these speeches have finally been revealed. And, uh, and sure enough, all the things that she said in order to sort of quell the Bernie Sanders uprising, <laughs> you know, she says the exact opposite when she's talking to them. She's a free trader. She thinks Wall Street people should regulate Wall Street. I mean, it's awful, you know? She thought that, uh, do you know what Bowles Simpson Commission, the Bowles Simpson Commission was? There's no reason you should, but it was. Uh, it's deeply, deeply unpopular with rank-and-file Democrats because it, it, uh, it imagined cutting Social Security, which is, is, you know, precious legacy of the 1930s for Americans. And she, 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 she shares that. She's, she's on the wrong side of, those, of all of those issues. And, and 
that said, I'm still voting for her. And so I think a lot of Bernie supporters are too. I think they recognize how dangerous Trump is. You can't have a bigot in the White House. It has weirdly come down to this lesser of two evils debate, though, hasn't it? Oh, it was like this all along. But that's just so shocking. I mean, Trump is, I mean, just exponentially worse in every single <laughs> every yeah. single way. I think, you know, all, you know, all, yeah. all, all, you know attempts at, um, at balance out of the window. The man, as you just said, watching her stood on stage with a man who had basically just admitted, boasted about yeah. sexual assaults. Yeah, gro- groping these women, you know, yeah. and, and, and ugh, I, I don't even want to go into it, but like, but one of the, one of the most interesting aspects of that is that he said he could do it because he was a star. Mm. Ew. So you mix the celebrity worship in there, too, which is just, like, so loathsome, you know? Ew. <laughs> but this has got to be the end of, of that guy, that, this particular scandal. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it clearly is going to be the end of him in terms of chances of him winning. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't mean that 38% of voters are going to vote for him you know he's still no, no, a lot right. of people out there who don't care what he yeah. says I mean that's yeah. surely worrying yes of course but look it, it was easier to talk about this before he said these these you know before we knew about this yeah this tape you know uh, try, look he's how many how many icebergs has this titanic hit you know and it won't stay down mm. uh <laughs> And all of the, you know, and and his diehard fans have basically brushed all of this stuff off up until now. And why is that? I mean, I th- I don't think they'll brush this one off, but they brushed the others off. Why is that? I think it's just desperation. Well, why do you think the tides turn then this time? Why is this oh, any so, worse? It's than so the grotesque. It's in his own voice, for one mm-hmm. thing. He's saying something that's so repugnant. Women are fifty percent of the population, you know. He's saying something that's so deeply repugnant, and to a lot of men too. I mean. I listen to that. That is just loathsome, just disgusting. But he's disgusted me before, mm-hmm. you know, uh, many times. So I'm not the I'm not the best one to ask. But I think it's because it's in his own voice. There's also this uh, the thing I was talking about before. Because I'm a star, this air of entitlement uh, regarding the rest of the world as toys or as you know playthings for his pleasure. It's all disgusting, and it's totally contrary to his image as the man who cares about the little people. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the blue-collar billionaire, as they called him at the Republican convention. No, no, this guy is just is, is, is a demagogue who, you know, who, who likes to uh, play with other humans. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We talked earlier on about how the Republicans had basically put up 17 people and he was the, he somehow ended up being yeah. the last man standing. I mean, the reality is we'd be in a lot worse position now if we were sitting here talking about Rubio or... Yeah, they, if it, Rubio would be winning. Rubio would win. I have no, no question in my mind about that. Uh, Ted Cruz would have been a little more, a little more complicated, but would have been a, a strong challenge to Hillary Clinton. Uh, or you take someone a little more mainstream, Carly Fiorina... <laughs> She would she would win. Uh, Jeb Bush probably even someone awful like Rick Santorum <laughs> would probably beat her. Yeah. Well, the Republicans. One of the reasons there was seventeen candidates. They thought it was their year. Mm-hmm. They thought for sure because they know she's going to be the the uh, Democratic candidate. You could see that a year ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote about it in Listen Liberal. 
uh, it was easy to see that she was going to be the candidate. So the question, and they, they know how weak she is, and she's riding on the Obama legacy, which is not something to be very particularly proud of. Uh, they know that they can that this is their year, and so that's why there's so many people out there throwing their hat into the ring, and it just happens to be the one they chose is the one that's going to lose. <laughs> just to finish off, then I guess regardless of of who wins and who loses the actual election, both the Democratic Party has, as you write about in Listen Liberal, gone away from its roots, gone away from its you know its core constituents. The Republican Party, although they wooed those people, have now basically lost control of that. We've ended up with Trump. Both parties are going to have to change after this. What does this, what does this election mean for both of these parties in the future? The Democrats are not going to change. The Democrats are quite sure of themselves. They, uh, they know beyond a shadow with, the, with the, the authority of political science itself that they are going to win every presidential election from here on because of the demographic changes in America. And they don't, they don't think they have to do anything differently. It's, uh, you know, they're, they're going to win. They are utterly complacent. I live around these people. I hear them say this stuff. They are not going to surrender the party to Bernie Sanders or anything like it. Now, what's fascinating is what's going to happen with the Republicans. Because this is the party, this isn't Trump's party. This is Newt Gingrich's party. This is uh, the, Tr- the Koch brothers' party. This is the party, you know, of, uh, of Ted Cruz and stuff like that. This is free market. This is the free market party. And look, look what Trump has done. So the question is, what happens after Trump is, is defeated? Do they embrace his movement? And is there going to be another Trump four years from now? Or are they going to go back and run another Mitt Romney mm-hmm. kind of character? You know, because they have their strategy too. And it's not based on winning a, a, an overwhelming landslide. It's based on some kind of little tiny marginal victory here at the edges uh, they can play this group this way and this group that way and maybe get a slightly better percentage with this group and maybe just prevail. Uh, you know, they are there. But Trump has the, uh, the, the fascinating thing about the Trump movement is that it could upset the whole apple cart. Uh, it just it remains to be seen what they do. So that's that's the big that's the next fight in America is all going to be within the Republican Party. And so you'll see four years from now, is it another Trump or is it another Romney? We're recording this just after the second debate and before the third debate in Las Vegas, which makes it sound more like a wrestling match than a political debate. It kind of is, you know. Is I mean, after this latest thing with Trump, people were sort of calling for him to stand down. He's clearly not going to, is he? Uh, no, he's not. I mean, it could he even my view do is, that? My is that view even, is, is that even possible? Oh, he's allowed, but my view is that he won't because he's he's that's not who he is. This is a man that is absolutely certain of himself and of his, you know, uh, it would be if he did step down. It would, of course, be the first time that's ever happened, and it would be extraordinary. And I have no idea what would come to pass. But uh, uh, I don't. I strongly doubt he'll do that. He's going to lose, though, right? Oh, that's my view. Yeah. Well, can I just tell you why, real quick? So when it was close, I thought he was going to lose. In America, it's not like who does the public choose. It's state by state, mm-hmm. and we know what the critical states are. I mean, things don't change so radically from year to year. Uh, they change gradually and slowly. And so we know what the states are that he has to win, and he's not going to win those states. Pennsylvania, he's behind by like 10, 15 points. Uh, Florida, he was ahead there, but I don't think he is anymore. North Carolina, Virginia, you go down the list. He has to win these places. There's no question about it, and he's not going to. Another thing, Clinton has the whole Democratic machine behind her. The party is ready to go. You know, They're really good at this, getting out the vote on election day. They're really good at it. 
the Republicans, it, Trump blew all that off <laughs> long ago. He has nothing. On, the, on election day, she's got the machine and he's got nothing. In a close election, she would win because of that. And this is not close. It'd be hilarious when I'm proved wrong. You all are going to laugh at me. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to move. I'm going to come moving over here. I'm going to come... Uh, Come and uh, live in the Little Adams uh, clubhouse. Nobody's going to be laughing, I can assure you of that, but we'll welcome you as a, as a political refugee when that happens. Yeah. Um, so I've been talking to Thomas Frank, we've been talking about Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People, which is out now in the UK from Scribe Books. Tom, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.